trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. All right, let's get this thing started. I want to begin by thanking my sponsors. Got a couple of wonderful sponsors who I hope you will uh, take the time to seek out and do business with. And they include Alta Bank Mortgage, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Now, I have a link at the bottom of the show notes where you can connect with them directly. And this is primarily going to apply to, uh, you know, to my listeners in the state of Utah. I've said this before, you know, when people say, well, you know, Brian, but it, it doesn't apply to me. Look, there's a very easy solution. Quit your job, move to Utah, and problem solved. See how easy that was? I know. I, I should work for government because uh, they're pretty good at imposing these one-size-fits-all solutions, too. That, yeah, of course we're happy to do it. Um, by the way, I guess, uh, so it sounds like Congress has gone ahead and passed some kind of a stimulus bill. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. admit, I don't follow this very closely, mainly because, well, I'm not standing there with my hand out, like, oh, cool, man, put some money in my hand. And, and, and secondly... It's it's political political posturing. Come on, they're they're talking about well, we're just trying to help these people that uh, yeah that uh, that your policies have been hurting for the last nine months. I don't know. That's true on a lot of different levels. And granted, this is federal stimulus, but uh, the people who have been suffering have been suffering because they've had too much government, not too little government. I saw a meme today. I wish I could repeat it verbatim, but it had a really bad word in it, so I can't. But I I can give you the gist of of what was at stake here. And if if you're not familiar with the Canadian um, comedy series Trailer Park Boys, let's just say there are some very memorable characters uh, who use some very, very colorful language. One of those memorable characters with his, uh, you know, his classic pompadour uh, is seen handing a wad of bills to another one of the lesser characters in the show. And the title above it says government giving you a stimulus check. And then down below is the dialogue of what he's saying. And he's saying, here, I'll pay you six hundred dollars to F off. (laughs) And I know maybe maybe people really need that money and I shouldn't be laughing, but but that's exactly the message that's kind of being sent on the part of government. It's it's like, yeah, this is really going to help those people who've been out of work for the last eight months. This is really going to help all those business owners that have gone under the people who've racked up their credit card debt to where they've reached their credit limit. That's six hundred bucks. Oh, yeah. That's going to pay all their back insurance. That's going to make sure that they've got groceries and they're caught up on their electrical bill and their rent and so forth. So what's the alternative? Should they just do nothing? Well, yeah, but not in the way that you might be thinking. When I say they should just do nothing, what I mean is government should get out of the way and let the free market handle the response to COVID. No, it might be, you know, in the part of government to to provide some facts or to provide some support in terms of, you know, information to the public. But all of this lockdown stuff, look, it hasn't made a difference. 
if they could point to some kind of uh, you know empirical evidence that shows, oh yeah, it has slowed the rate here, and it actually preserved this many lives, and it saved this many people, but it hasn't. How do we know this? Well, because there have been a lot of people who've been keeping track. I don't think anybody's been doing so more faithfully than our friends at the American Institute for Economic Research, who have been faithfully watching and noting what kind of effects, and I mean crunching the numbers, as as true economists would do, how much measurable impact have these lockdowns had on either slowing or stopping the the spread of COVID-19? And it just doesn't matter. The areas that lock it down hard still have about the same amount of spread as many of the areas that don't lock down at all. So it's it's not something that is easily controlled. It's a virus after all. But we're pretending or at least we're supposed to pretend government can handle this. If we just give them enough trust and enough power, they can they can handle it for us. Now, I, for one, am not uh, am not quite so uh, confident in their abilities. And while I'm sure that the $600 checks for each adult and for each dependent child, you know, living in your household, that's going to be nice. But it's hardly a drop in the bucket. And, and by the way, if, I, if I'm reading this right, if I saw the numbers correctly, we're talking about a $900 billion relief bill. Less than $200 billion of that is going to these $600 checks to 328 million Americans. Where's that extra $700 billion going? Just, you know, inquiring minds want to know. And if, the, if those numbers are off just a little bit, please, fact checkers, be, you know, be gentle with me here. But I think you get the point. There's a tiny bit being thrown to the American people. Here, take this. We'll just borrow this money and we'll make your problems go away. But that's a huge chunk of change. Massive chunk that is going Somewhere. And I'm curious, where where does that go? Is it going to cities and municipalities? In other words, is it just being transferred to more government? Is it being transferred to some of these big businesses, which miraculously are having banner years because all the little businesses have been shut down by mandate? I know there are people who are like, hey, man, there's no such thing as a conspiracy. And I would I would agree with them to the point that, uh, hey, it doesn't appear to be a conspiracy to me. This appears to be a very concerted and open effort and, and uh, consensus, if you will, on the part of people in power. We just have to lock it down. We determine these are essential and these are not essential. But isn't it interesting the ones that, uh, that seem to be deemed essential have somehow at some point climbed into bed with government? I think it was Paul Rosenberg who pointed this out many years ago. He said, think of a major, major corporation that's just killing it. And he says, see if you can come up with one that hasn't partnered with government at some level. It's a good exercise. The mom and pop stores, they don't get the same kind of consideration that, uh, you know, Walmarts and, you know, Amazon and so forth would get. You can even bring it down to the local level. It doesn't even have to be, oh, yeah, you know, they're all standing there with their hands out, you know, rent-seeking from the federal government. Look at what happens when Walmart starts looking at, at a town, even a small municipality, and says, yeah, we're thinking maybe we ought to put a store in here. Why, well, it sure raise some great sales tax revenues for your uh, burg, and it would also, you know, be a great thing for us. But we can't do it unless you sweeten the deal. 
and watch that uh, watch that local government snap to well here's what we can do we're going to provide infrastructure and we're going to give you these tax breaks and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to provide this and oh we're even going to donate some of the land here and blah 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 they will fall over themselves because they're looking with dollar signs in their eyes that hey this is going to generate revenue for us now the mom and pop business someone says well i want to open up a you know camping supply store or something like that well you better fill out all of these forms better fill them out correctly you better do this pay that you know jump here stand there you got to jump through all the hoops go through all the red tape is there a red carpet rolled out any tax incentives any kind of infrastructure being put in to motivate you to come and open up your shop sorry mom and pop nope and it's purely because that municipality is looking at it again with the dollar signs in their eyes and they're not seeing the kinds of tax revenue from you and your business that we can get from this big box store. So that's one partial explanation of why does uh, why does government want to partner with, you know, big business? Then, of course, you have the uh, lobbying interests and other special interests, Teamsters and so forth that that help to make those businesses run. Bottom line, though. A huge disservice has been done to business owners all over the country. In fact, all over the world, for that matter. And it appears, at least from my vantage point, and I'll grant you, it's a limited one, but it appears it was done without any delivery on the promise of, but this is going to slow the spread of the the disease. It's going to make us safer. It hasn't. And the crazy part is most of these businesses, in in the interest of self-preservation, were already taking the precautions they could, putting out hand sanitizer, offering masks or insisting on masks or insisting that people socially distance and so forth. I don't know where it goes, but uh, I think think the meme, crude as it is, about uh, here, I'll pay you $600 to kiss off, is probably closer to truth than not. It's a little pressure relief valve. Ah, throw them a few crumbs. They'll shut up. They'll go back to fighting amongst themselves about something else, which sadly is kind of what we do. All right. Got to take a break. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. I feel better. That's been under my skin for a day or two. And I'm when I heard about the passage of this bill, let's just say my frustration with Congress didn't exactly go away. When we come back, we're going to talk about Bitcoin. Paul Rosenberg advances the idea that Bitcoin solves more problems than it creates. Stick around. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113. If you are a new listener, I want to welcome you to the show. And I'm sorry, I, I feel like I started off on kind of a radical note today. Normally, I try to ease in, and then once you start liking me, uh, then I start really dropping the radical stuff, and you think, oh, but he's such a nice guy. Maybe this is okay. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm kidding, but um, we live in such crazy times. It's impossible to talk about anything that actually matters without coming off as a radical to somebody. Uh, 
Just happened to catch a little bit of a news feed on Twitter during the break. And holy cow, things are popping off at the Oregon State Capitol building. Um, I don't know when this uh, when this was posted. I'm guessing this was posted. Let me pull this up here real quick. And I can tell you just within the last couple of hours. Yeah, about three hours ago. Um, apparently, Oregon officials are meeting at the Oregon State Capitol. Uh, they're, they, it's a closed meeting to determine what they want to do in terms of lockdowns. They don't want the public in this. They don't want the public, you know, having access to it. And the public is furious. Lots of people standing outside the building, waving flags. In fact, I'm sitting here watching the the police are trying to keep the crowd back. The police started to pepper spray the crowd, it looked like. And the crowd pepper sprayed them right back. And then wrenched the door open and began walking into the building. You can hear people coughing (laughs) as they're going in. But um, they are really, really upset. That their elected officials are, are trying to make decisions without input from the people. And I look, I get that there, well, there needs to be decorum, Brian, and people need to, you know, do this in a calm and rational manner. I agree. Ideally, that's how it should be done. But what do you do when your public officials start to lock themselves behind closed doors and make the kind of decisions that dramatically impact people's lives and livelihoods? And then they turn off their cell phones. And they, you know, ignore the emails and that's you have no other way of being heard. So there's definitely some pretty serious civil disobedience going on there at the Oregon State Capitol. But I'm looking at the bright side here and thinking at least people aren't just standing on the sidelines, you know, hat in hand, begging for permission. Please, please listen to us. They're demanding to be heard. In a less civilized, less civilized time, there would be buckets of tar and bags of feathers nearby. And I think that these elected leaders need to thank their lucky stars that that's not the case now. I guess what I'm trying to say is there, there is no, um, there's no need to be ashamed of being outraged at someone trying to deny you or deprive you of your freedom. No matter how well-intentioned, If the end result is they are harming you, they shouldn't get a pass. And you shouldn't just politely acquiesce. Well, okay, cheerio. I guess we'll solve this in the next election. Because as we're starting to see, elections really don't solve that much. Or at least (laughs) it's hard to believe that they're going to solve anything. So let's talk about money. Well, I want to shift gears here. We'll talk about Bitcoin instead. I am not a cryptocurrency expert by any means. Paul Rosenberg, who writes for freemansperspective.com, I think he would be a legit cryptocurrency expert. I think he's one of the people who actually was there at the very beginning and has been thoroughly in the know on this right from the start. So when he has something to say on such matters, I tend to give him a little more credibility than I do some, you know, talking head on the news who just, you know, I read an article once and here's what I think. So Paul is coming from a position of of direct personal knowledge. And he says there's a common refrain that Bitcoin fixes this. And sometimes he says it's well used, sometimes less so. But he says, I'm being very serious when I say that Bitcoin fixes society. And then he goes on to illustrate precisely how Bitcoin is able to change the world at the largest scale. Now, why would I bring this up? Well, 
I guess because I'm one of those people who a few years ago was giving the side eye to those who were saying, hey, you should really get in on this Bitcoin thing. And I was like, yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty risky. What happens if the power goes out? You know, what what happens if it's just electronic money? I mean, come on, there's nothing tangible. Now, keep in mind, the people who got in on Bitcoin way back at the beginning, what, 10 years ago or so, they seem to be doing pretty well. I mean, do you remember just a couple of years ago when when Bitcoin had that amazing run up to like almost $19,000? Do you remember that? Holy cow, who would have thought that a Bitcoin would run up to that that amount? Oh, yeah, by the way, it was over $24,000 this weekend. Now, you may want to dismiss that all as well. Now, Brian, that's just adjusted for inflation. But the bottom line is uh, somebody's confidence in Bitcoin appears to be growing because the perceived value is growing as well. And here's Paul Rosenberg's explanation for how Bitcoin can fix society as opposed to just doing things the way we've been doing with our current fiat currency you know, approach. He says, fundamentally, Bitcoin changes society and changes the world at the largest scale by changing the incentives that give modern society its shape. And as it happens, the world's incentives in our time have been set primarily with money. So if we change those incentives, we change the world overall. That process may not be fast, easy or pristine, but the principle remains true. Change the incentives, change the world. He says, so let's get directly into real life applications of Bitcoin to large and fundamental societal operations. We'll start with the most obvious and move on from there. War. Now, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, he says, can't entirely fix war. Of course, that won't happen until humanity itself upgrades, but it will drastically reduce it. Here's why. He says, bear in mind, and I'm focusing on the United States here. We haven't paid for a war since World War Two. That war required actual sacrifices of the populace, rationing, massive sales of war bonds and shortages. In other words, people had to cooperate in the war effort. In 1971, however, dollars were cut free of gold and could be printed up in any number with no immediate consequence. All the wars since have been run on credit. And Bitcoin does not permit this. You cannot conjure new Bitcoins by entering a figure on a ledger as you can with dollars. So in a Bitcoin economy, running a war would require people to actually pay for it. What do you suppose would happen then? Paul Rosenberg says, hence, there will be fewer wars and much, much more careful ones. Then he gets to the subject of welfare. Now, he says that's a political cauldron bubbling over with intimidation, guilt and fake absolution. So let's start by acknowledging that welfare has failed spectacularly. He says, I'm sure people once supported it with decent intentions, but they were wrong. Consider this, please. Today's disadvantaged are precisely those whom welfare programs have been saving for generations. He says, like war, welfare was unleashed by cutting the link between gold and the dollar. Under a large number of programs, trillions of dollars have been spent for human needs. But the operation simply hasn't worked. In addition, Welfare has massively indebted productive people who are accused of privilege at the same time. No clear-minded person would sign up for that deal. But he says this mess could not work under a Bitcoin model. Welfare would have to come directly from working people, and it would be very easy to see that private charity produced far better results for a fraction of the cost. 
Past that point, almost no one would choose to pay for government charity. I like where he's going here. Next, he talks about public corruption. Now, he says corruption is as old as positions of advantage. So, of course, again, Bitcoin won't entirely fix this, but it will chop it down to size one way or another. Corruption is always proportional to government spending. The briber pays according to what the bribee has to give. And the ability to give has massively expanded under the model of fast, painless money creation. Whole departments and regulatory regimes are created and funded with no more effort than the stroke of a few pens and keyboards. As a result, billions of dollars are spent every year to influence legislation. Now, that's bribery, of course, but it's legal. Once the money stream staunches because getting money is painful, the bribery business will dry up. Not entirely, but very significantly. I like what I'm hearing. And I'll have a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, lines are open at 801-331-8113. By the way, I want to welcome uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance on board as one of our sponsors. I don't know if you ever get that funny feeling sometimes, like you've spent money on insurance policies, but you're not sure if you're protected like you think you are. Well, if you wonder whether you're paying too much or if you wish you just understood better so you could feel more in control of that uh, necessary but major expense, you should talk to my friends. Talk to my buddy Steve Burgess at at uh, Risk Management. I'm sorry, at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. He is standing by. I've got a, actually a link to his website there at the bottom of my show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. And uh, just talk to him. He'll answer your questions, help you feel more empowered. You can tell him thank you for being one of the sponsors of this program. So we're talking about Bitcoin before the break and how Bitcoin can solve societal problems. Now, I'm not thinking that Paul Rosenberg is saying it's a panacea. If we just if we just adopt it, it solves everything. But I have to admit, from the standpoint of um, free money, or at least government being able to finance whatever the heck it wants to finance, that has certainly led to a lot of mischief, both domestically and abroad. And I would love to see government reined in just by virtue of the fact that it could not spend as it wishes. That alone would improve our lives measurably. Now, Paul says, before we get to the deeper ways that Bitcoin fixes society. Oh, by the way, I liked his take on how it reduces corruption, too. Just, you know, get make it painful for people to engage in bribery because it's hard to get the money. He says, let's pause and consider that we've just solved war, welfare, official corruption. He says, let me say that another way to make the scale of this clear, the first and most obvious effects of Bitcoin, were it to become our primary currency, would be to massively diminish war, the robbing of Peter to pay Paul, and corruption in government. Now, can we call this anything but gigantic and stunning, he asks. And really, it is just the start, so let's continue. How about those deeper changes? He says, I'd like you to consider the economic world of 1910. While the daily lives of these people strongly resembled our own, their economic lives were wildly different. These people had been using honest money 
gold, and silver for most of the past century, and it created a very different situation. In 1910, new money had to be pulled grudgingly from the ground. If governments wanted money to spend, they had to get it from those who earned it. That pushed them toward that pushed them more to that pushed more, them more toward the beggars and let to be beggars and less toward dictators. New investments were funded mainly by subscription, which was roughly equivalent to GoFundMe. Stock prices were based upon earning and the dividends that came from them. People retired on those dividends. But the greatest difference in that time was the dignity of the working man. He says, the next time you go through an old city, look at the grand homes that were built in this era, and then consider this. Those homes were built by grocers, mechanics, longshoremen, and bakers. Hard work and prudence in those days allowed someone to do very well. And he says, please notice that the mating ritual of the time embodied this. The man goes out to earn his nest egg and so convinces the girl to marry him. If that was impossible... The young people of 1910 would have rejected this model, as young people did a generation or two later, when it really did become impossible. He says, consider also that the honest hard workers of this era made loans. Their grandchildren conversely found themselves walking into banks and begging for loans. And this fundamentally changed their attitudes regarding themselves. Under an honest new money regime, the dignity of the productive man or woman will be restored. They will return to their position as the primary, as the source of all value, rather than a derivative entity forever beseeching the money spigot to turn their way. And he says, this is the change that really matters, and it will fundamentally reshape society. What we'll also gain from living under an honest money regime is the restoration of a comprehensible world. The value and the effects of that will be gargantuan. The reason for this is because under the fiat money regime, Life has been overrun with complexity. Considering that money is our central tool of survival and that the nature of money itself is purposely confused, it could hardly be any other way. And he says, just so you hear it from someone other than me, here's John Kenneth Galbraith saying the same thing a generation or two ago. Quote, the study of money above all other fields in economics is one in which complexity is used to disguise truth or to evade truth, not to reveal it. End quote. Paul Rosenberg says once that changes, once money is comprehensible and honest, a large portion of the confusion surrounding us will fade away, and with it a whole range of persistent human efforts, errors rather. A Bitcoin, Bitcoin regime, he says, would still encompass flaws, abuses, and stupidities, of course. Those will be with us until we ourselves improve, but it will not fund them and defend them. So, yes, a Bitcoin regime will fix society deeply and enduringly. Laboring for this, he says, is one of the noblest efforts of our time. Now, please understand, my goal in sharing this article with you is not to persuade you. Therefore, go out and put all your money into Bitcoin right now or some other cryptocurrency. I think I'm more interested in, I think Paul has correctly diagnosed the problems and the root causes of these problems. And the fact that our current fiat currency system is the, the prime enabler of this kind of abuse. So, yeah, just speaking for myself, I'd be very open. I'd be very welcoming of something that could shift that, that power back to us as the providers of value. 
rather than making us, you know, the little orphans standing there with our bowl in our hands saying, please, sir, may I have more? Again, I've got a link to this in the show notes. Please check it out. I want to talk for a moment about the free market, because when it comes to solving problems, and by the way, Bitcoin is a great example of the free market, not government, stepping forward to solve a problem. Government should be a regrettable last resort, not the first resort when it comes to solving whatever problem you're dealing with. Reason for this is because the free market does a better job. It can solve problems at a lower level. It doesn't require force or coercion to make it happen. And Gary Gallas, writing for Mises.org, helps dispel a myth that, unfortunately, a lot of people have bought into. I, I have a number of friends that, uh, that, for whatever reason, I mean, these are really bright young people, but they have fully bought into the idea that uh, collectivism is the way to go. That's the way of the future. That's the only fair way that things can be done. Whether they're talking socialism, in a couple of cases, I think they're outright looking at, at Marxism. They feel like, you know, the free market is just a way to take advantage of people. I mean, they totally have bought into Marx's vision. And I'm not sure exactly where they became untethered, but that's where they are. They obviously have never lived in a, in a society that was ruled by that kind of a system. And so they feel pretty safe in suggesting, I guess, like, like others who've come before them, like millions who came before them, if just the right people could implement it, we could get this right which means you have to ignore ignore hundreds and hundreds of millions of people sent to early graves by such governments. Yeah, history has some valuable lessons, but they don't do you any good if your blinders are on that tight. So they, they rip on free market economics as, well, this is just a way to take advantage of people. And Gary Gallus says it's a very common rip on market arrangements is that, well, markets use people. He says, for instance, I've come across many versions of love people and use things rather than loving things and using people. As Paul Hine expressed the sense of it, such a system seems somehow to violate our profound moral conviction that nothing is more valuable than individual persons and that each person ought to be treated as a unique end, never as a means to some further end. Now, the irony is those who love liberty derive their endorsement of market arrangements from the primacy of individuals, as Leonard Reed wrote, an individualist looks upon society as the upshot, outcome, effect, recapitulation, incidental to what is valued above all else, namely each distinctive individual human being. So why have market arrangements used people criticisms persisted, even though the central defense of such arrangements is that it benefits the individuals involved? Well, Gary Gallus says in large part it comes from sloppy misuse of the word use. While there is widespread moral condemnation of using people, use has different meanings. Use can mean utilize or employ with no implication of harm to others. That's what we mean when we say someone uses a hammer. It's also what happens when people voluntarily provide their services to advance others' purposes in markets. In contrast, you can also mean abuse or harm, particularly as a result of force or fraud. That's what we mean when we say, you pretended to care about me, but you were just using me. See, the first meaning is consistent with either imposing no harm on others or benefiting them, as in mutually acceptable market arrangements, which individuals would not otherwise enter into. The second meaning requires that others are harmed, and not clearly distinguishing the different meanings introduces serious confusion. 
This is a great article. Again, you'll find it in the show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. We'll come back to it right after these messages. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article by Gary M. Gallus. This is published on the Mises.org website about how markets aren't about using people. They're about helping people attain their goals. And he says some people might be fooled by hearing that, well, you use others in markets, using people harms them. But he says that's far less likely if you clarify the meaning, which meaning of the word use you have in mind. You utilized others, willingly supplied services, therefore you harmed them. That's not going to convince very many people. So language misuse abetted by sloppy thinking can transform mutual benefits from uncoerced market exchanges into the fantasy of exploitation theory. Now, he says there's another logical problem that arises when we say we should treat people solely as ends in themselves and never as means for our purposes, because it's not an either or choice. Those we deal with voluntarily are both ends in themselves and the means by which we advance our ends. What each of us offers others is in in voluntary arrangements, rather, is means to better advance others ends. But to treat goods and services others provide us voluntarily as means to our ends doesn't demean them as individuals. It's simply inherent in mutual benefit. To miss that distinction and condemn such arrangements as unethical use of others comes very close to the self-contradictory assertion that nothing mutually beneficial is allowable. Instead, we should rather we should laud rather than lambast a system that can dovetail the often incompatible plans and purposes of multitudes of different individuals without abusing them or their rights to expand what can actually be achieved. Furthermore, he says, when people freely choose their arrangements, we need to notice that doing so respects others as important ends in themselves in a crucial way that's absent when others are dictating what's allowable under freedom. Every individual can choose for themselves how to best use the means they have at their disposal to advance their own ends. To miss that fact, just because we primarily do this indirectly, exchanging our means for the means others control, as when I exchange my labor for your money, in other words, claims on resources, which I then use to advance the ends I choose, is to make a serious analytical error. Mutually voluntary arrangements are those whose participants each believes best advance their ends without violating others' similar pursuit of their ends. And what can better advance others' ends than letting them choose how to use their current means most productively as they see it? As Philip Wicksteed wrote in The Common Sense of Political Economy, voluntary economic relations ease the limitations of their own direct resources by the very act that brings a corresponding liberation to those with whom they deal, leaving no room to bring it against the charge of being intrinsically sordid and degrading. Further, he explains, the hypothetical ideal of solely treating people as objects of benevolence rather than utilizing their services through mutually beneficial exchanges is unattainable. As Wicksteed put it, the limitation of our powers would prevent our taking an equally active interest in everyone's affairs. In any society larger than an immediate family, we cannot, we simply cannot know enough to organize relationships based 
on benevolence. Consider the sheer number of transactions and transactors involved in our economic arrangements. Vast numbers of people are involved for even the simplest products, much less more complex ones. In such circumstances, the alternatives are not coordinating relationships via exchange, another name for persuasion, or via charity, but between coordinating relationships via exchange or coordinating them far less well, if at all, because it exceeds our knowledge and capabilities. Here's how Paul Hine encapsulated the issue. When money prices, rather than concern for each other as persons, coordinate social transactions, social cooperation becomes possible on a more extensive scale. Those who would like to force all social transactions into the personal mode do not realize how much of what they now take for granted would become wholly impossible in the world of their ideals. They're ignoring the incredible complexity of the system of social cooperation by means of which we are fed, clothed, housed, warmed, healed, transported, comforted, entertained, challenged, inspired, educated, and generally served. So in conclusion... Gary Gallus's claims that market arrangements involve the unethical using of others are of lengthy pedigree, but they're also of questionable merit. They rhetorically transform the utilization of other services or individuals' services in ways that benefit all parties involved into using others to their imagined detriment. They treat the issue as a choice between treating others as a means or as ends. When people are ends in themselves and the providers of the means for others to best advance their ends. So honoring others as ends in themselves also means letting them choose which of their means can best achieve their ends. And if we were to reject letting individuals utilize their services for others voluntarily as they see fit, it would leave us only with benevolence as the basis of all of our relationships. In a complex world, however, that would not advance the good we do for one another. It would destroy many of the forms of social cooperation that voluntary arrangements have produced so dependably that we rely on them daily. Consequently, he says, careful thinking, not cowed or manipulated by misleading arguments, should lead us to reject the market arrangements use people criticism. If we accept the premise that individuals and their development are our greatest ends, the voluntary arrangements they evolve are, as Frederick Hayek pointed out, among society's greatest creations, not its nemesis. I understand there's a lot of economic speak in there, but I feel pretty confident if I can get my mind around it, someone smarter than me, like you, could definitely do that as well. One final thought here. I just wanted to share a quick uh, excerpt or two from an article from Barry Brownstein, giving thanks for the web of interdependence. And this has more to do with, with gratitude than just pure economics. He says, much has been made this year of expressing gratitude to frontline and essential workers, whether in healthcare, grocery stores, or other industries. These individuals put their lives on the line to serve others, forming a strong link in the web of interdependence we all share. Yet, he says, expressing such gratitude often requires us to notice events from a different vantage point than our own habitual stream of thinking. In his meditations, Marcus Aurelius instructed himself, keep reminding yourself of the way things are connected, of their relatedness. Aurelius pointed us to the often invisible connected nature of life. All things are implicated in one another and in sympathy with one another. Unfortunately, Barry Brownstein points out, when an individual or group acts selfishly, the natural sympathy Aurelius mentions is trampled, 
That seems to be the case with teachers' unions in Montgomery County, Maryland, whose self-focused efforts have kept the district largely closed to in-person teaching. Schools can safely open and have been urged to do so by Maryland state government officials. Private schools have done so successfully. But public school teachers prefer to continue to collect full pay while taking zero risks and leaving the most vulnerable students far behind. Now, are there at-risk teachers? Of course, and special arrangements can be made for them. Presumably, though, most Montgomery County teachers shop at supermarkets and take other risks that come with daily existence. Now, he points out here, Barry Brownstein says the average salary of a Montgomery County public school teacher is listed as over $60,000 on Indeed, while a supermarket clerk might make $15 an hour. Each day, hundreds of people pass through supermarket checkout lines. He says, perhaps like me, you've noticed high-risk seniors among the supermarket workers serving diligently throughout this pandemic. The risks supermarket workers take to serve us is many orders of magnitude larger than a school teacher who encounters the same students daily. And so he says one wonders if these teachers need to see life in sympathy with others, asking themselves whether life is really about feathering one's own nest. If everyone adopted the attitude of teachers unions, life would come to a halt for we are indebted to an unimaginable number of people. He gives a great example from author, lecturer, and humorist Jonathan Robinson, who has the antidote to selfish uh, selfishness rampant among uh, the Montgomery County school teachers and others. And it's worth checking out. The magical mantra that Robinson suggests is just learning to say the words "thank you." And apparently, he uh, he. He was instructed by a guru who told him, wherever possible, just repeat these words in your head. Thank you. That means when you eat food, good food, say thank you. When you see your child or a sunset or your pet, repeat the mantra, thank you. And it finally clicks in Robinson's mind. He starts to recognize all the little miracles around him. Air conditioning, flush toilets, airplanes, computers. He feels the word thank you swelling in his heart. And on his lips. The point being, in viewing life in sympathy with others, gratitude is one of the best ways that you can start to really appreciate what you have. It doesn't depend on circumstances, it's a function of our state of mind. We didn't create ourselves, and without others, we're doomed. Mutual interdependence is a fundamental truth of life. Gratitude for others, especially those taking risks to serve us, calms our minds, opens our hearts. And we make better choices as we take our place in that web of interdependence. I thought that was a pretty cool take. This is The Brian Hyde Show.